Chapter Four of Van Dyke by Percy M. Turner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Van Dyke in England, Plate Seven, Portrait of the Artist's Wife, a remarkably good example of Van Dyke's power of depicting female character whenever he is faced with a sitter in whom he is interested he suited his technique to the points he wished to emphasize it is the possession of this versatility which enables him to infuse so much seductive charm into his women portraits and such trenchant vigor into those of men and now to van dyke in england there never was a time in the history of the english court when such opportunities for advancement were presented to an artist possessing the genius of van dyke as during the reign of charles i he was one of the few monarchs of england who recognized the civilizing influence of art on the nation and encouraged it in a manner quite beyond his means it mattered not of what period school or nationality a work happened to be so long as it possessed a high degree of merit it appealed strongly to the king we have only to consider the superb collection he brought together only to be ruthlessly dispersed by the commonwealth to gauge the refinement of his taste many of the priceless possessions of foreign galleries formed part of his collection and if england had only been in a position to retain her hold upon them we should no doubt to-day be in possession of the finest assemblage of italian art in the world i need only enumerate the sumptuous portrait of alfonso of ferrara and laura diatani and the entombment by titian in the louvre and the portrait of erasmus by holbein in the louvre and the marvellous portrait of a young woman for so many years wrongly ascribed to the same master at the hague the portrait of albrecht durer by himself in the prado and the two masterpieces by gertgen van st jans in the imperial gallery at vienna to demonstrate the quality of his many possessions in england we still have retained a few of his treasures conspicuous among them are those masterpieces of andrea montegna the triumph of julius caesar at hampton court the albert durer and the lorenzo lotto in the same gallery together with the mercury cupid and venus by correggio in the national gallery needless to say that a collector who had sufficient taste to bring together such a notable assemblage would demand a very high degree of talent indeed in a painter who was working for the court 
charles had moreover been brought into contact with the brilliant achievements of rubens and would in consequence expect a great deal from a pupil whose merits he had heard so extolled the portrait of nicholas lanier appealed to him immediately he saw in van dyck a man whose performances even at this early age far surpassed those of any painter then working in england charles who immensely admired the portraits of rubens saw in those of his pupil an italian quality lacking in the former and this would additionally attract him van dyck's reception was most flattering he was given a lodging at blackfriars amongst the other painters and was set to work immediately for the king charles was quite as much taken with the courtly qualities and conversation of his newly found painter as by his talent and greatly enjoyed his company he was accustomed to go to blackfriars by water and to chat with van dyck whilst having his portrait painted from this time date innumerable portraits of charles and his queen henrietta maria with which we are so familiar the fashion thus set by the king was speedily taken up by his court and the nobility of england competed with one another for the privilege of having their portraits painted by the brilliant fleming soon after his arrival van dyck received the honor of knighthood and in addition to being appointed painter to his majesty had an annuity of two hundred pounds per annum settled upon him the quantity of commissions which now flowed in upon him was prodigious and he was sorely taxed to keep pace with them he was enabled in consequence to raise his prices considerably without in the least diminishing the patronage bestowed upon him he commenced to entertain on a lavish scale and his table was frequented by the highest in the land it is said that after occupying the morning in painting portraits he would invite his sitters to dinner and then from the study he had made of their countenances during the meal would work upon the portraits again in the afternoon although van dyck had been accustomed to good society and living the overwhelming good fortune which was now his lot appears to have developed bad habits in him he soon acquired luxurious habits which finally undermined his health passionately fond of music he liberally encouraged all the professors of that art and gratuitously painted the portraits of its most celebrated exponents the demands upon his purse at this time must have been enormous and in order to increase his output and consequently his income he had recourse to the means he had seen rubens so successfully employ in antwerp he brought together a school of painters who worked under his direction the portraits dating from this period consequently not only show the marked deterioration in his technique but also beyond the heads and hands and a few other essential details contain but little of his own work 
his assistants were so thoroughly trained that they were enabled to paint the draperies and their accessories in a style which welded perfectly with his own brushwork these facts have to be carefully remembered whenever we are contemplating a work of the english period of van dyck for were we to form our judgments solely upon the portraits he had painted prior to going to england we should reject many of the former as not being from his hand there is further the added difficulty that his assistants executed pictures in his manner on their own account and it is only by the lack of that spark of genius he was enabled to infuse in those parts of a portrait he executed with his own hand that we are enabled to differentiate between them many of the portraits of the king and queen which were sent as presents all over europe were but the productions of his studio it is only in such superb presentation of charles as that in the louvre at windsor and in the national gallery that we are enabled to judge of his capabilities at this period he now almost entirely deserted historical painting there was no demand for it in england and his attention was exclusively devoted to portraiture moreover if we may judge from the ever-increasing facility with which he was wont to paint it may be fairly said that his attention during these years was being diverted from painting to pleasure he never lost interest in his art but he was impelled to adopt a more facile manner by the pressure of his engagements and his ever-increasing expenses he kept a country house at eltham in kent where he spent the summer a form of extravagance more defensible than many in which he was accustomed to indulge meanwhile he had contracted a marriage with mary ruthven granddaughter of lord ruthven earl of cowrie by whom he had one daughter his wife however brought him no dowry but was considered one of the greatest beauties of her time soon after his marriage he left england with his wife for the purpose of showing her his native country they travelled for some time visiting his family and friends then the idea occurred to him that he would proceed to paris with a view of sharing if possible in the contemplated decoration of the louvre and thus win laurels equal to those of rubens had gained by his work in the luxembourg he arrived however too late nicholas pousset had been brought especially from rome for the purpose and the work was in hand disappointed in this and still desiring to execute some great work by which he might secure a lasting renown he returned to england and proposed to the king through the medium of his old and trusty friend sir kenelm digby to embellish the wall of the banqueting-house at whitehall with the history of the order of the garter the ceiling of the sumptuous chamber had already been painted by rubens and van dyck no doubt considered that his work would blend admirably with that of his master the sum he asked for eight thousand pounds although considerable 
would no doubt not have stood in the way of the execution of the project had it occurred at an earlier date in the reign of the unfortunate charles the kingdom however was already in a turbulent condition funds were scarce and such as existed might have to be employed at any moment in raising an army to defend the king's cause charles was now occupied in a life-and-death struggle with his people and had no time to devote to artistic pursuits van dyke consequently waited in vain for an answer and it is to be supposed that meanwhile commissions did not come to him as easily as formerly young as he still was the effects of his past luxurious life were beginning to tell upon him and coupled with the disappointment occasioned by the rejection of his proposal contributed to bring on gout he began to have financial worries too but these can hardly have been sufficiently great to have troubled him much for he left at his death property to the value of twenty thousand pounds he therefore turned his attention probably in emulation or by the advice of his friend sir kenelm digby to the pursuit of the philosopher's stone and needless to say the results of his experiments and the money he expended upon them only aggravated the state of his health he rapidly sickened and died in london on december ninth sixteen forty one when forty-two years of age he was accorded a magnificent funeral in st paul's cathedral and was buried in a tomb beside that of john of gaunt end of van dyke in england